amazing. In light of all that we've been considering in Sunday school about how sinful we are, we're accepted by God in Christ. What a wonderful thing. Let's uh, thank Him for that now. Pray and then we'll dig into the Word of God. Father, it's just amazing. Every week we come here and even before the sermon, we've already heard so much truth that our hearts can't help but to rejoice. To rejoice in the deep, deep love of Jesus. The fact that through Your Word, You revive us again. We're rejoicing in the fact that we're acceptable to God in Christ. And that together with one voice, we can glorify our God and Father who is in heaven. We're just amazed, Lord, at Your glory. And we know how important it is for us to hear the Word of God. I know there are many churches today where the Word is so scarcely even read. It's amazing that even if a verse is read, it's, it's kind of a big deal. But I'm thankful to be in a place where the Word is always read, always taught, always sung, always understood, loved, adored, lived out. What a wonderful, wonderful reality Your Word is to us. And now as we come to open it and hear from heaven, we pray again that You would help us understand this portion of Scripture. <laughs> that we might grow to reflect the image of our Savior more. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, do not turn to Colossians, but turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Not to be confused with the Gospel of John, by the way. 1 John is John's first letter, and it's toward the back of your New Testament. The 1 John chapter 1. Some of you were wanting me to do other things. Uh, one of our brothers wanted me to do Ecclesiastes or Revelation, but uh, John Calvin didn't even write a commentary on Revelation, so I figured I wouldn't venture where even Calvin wouldn't venture. But we're going to go to 1 John. 1 John, a wonderful little letter, and we're going to begin an exposition of this book this morning, and you know what to expect. You know that we're going to spend several months, maybe even up to a year, studying this book. Now, I've told you in the past that the only means by which God saves and sanctifies His people is the Word of God. That's what we need. You don't need my ideas. You don't need my philosophies. You don't need my ingenuity. You need to hear the Word of God. So that's why we do what we do. We go through the Scripture verse by verse. In fact, one of my all-time favorite quotes is a quote by a man named Martin Luther. Luther said, I did nothing. The Word did it all. I did nothing. The Word did it all. That's my philosophy of ministry. I do nothing. I just want to open the Word of God and I want to clarify the meaning of Scripture to you, setting before the people of God the theological and practical implications of a passage and let the Word of God do its work in my heart and in your hearts. That's my desire. That's all I want to do. And the hope is that as we behold the glory of Jesus in His Word, the Spirit would use the Word to make us more and more like our Savior. So in light of that, I believe that the best way to preach is to do it expositionally. Expository preaching. That is, to preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, word by word, book by book, through the Scriptures, so that the people of God get the full counsel of God. All of what God has to say. And in doing so, the goal is to explicate, explain, draw out the God-intended meaning, so that God's people understand what He is saying through each portion of Scripture. That's my desire. That is to deal with the Word of God the way He has laid it out Himself in Scripture, right? Word by word and line by line. That's how He gave it to us. That's how we study it best. And you know, we've talked about this before, but if the pastor is not committed to expositional preaching, you're not going to usually get the full counsel of God. You're going to get hobby horses. You're going to get the pastor's favorite topics. But you're not going to get all that God has to say in the Scripture. Because there are just some things I would never preach on if I didn't preach through the Bible verse by verse. So that's our commitment, is to go through the Word of God one verse at a time. And so, having finished the book of Colossians last week, we now come to the book of 1 John this morning. 1 John chapter 1. And I think once we finish 1 John, per uh, the suggestion of Sean, I think we'll go ahead and do 2 and 3 John as well. 2 and 3 John are two little letters written by the same author, and we could probably work through both of those letters in about a month and a half or so. So we're looking at about a year or so working our way through First through Third John, digging deep into what the Lord has for us. So the plan for this morning basically is to introduce the book. I don't know if you remember, 
uh, me preaching to you through the internet uh, when we started the Colossians series. But basically we're going to do this morning what we did when we started that book. We're just going to look at the introduction. Just some basic information. And then next week we'll start the exposition by digging into the first two verses. But before we get started with all of that, let me tell you why I chose the book of 1 John and not Ecclesiastes and not Revelation or not some other book other than Calvin's my reason. But I chose this book because as you know, Matthew chapter 7 makes it crystal clear that not everyone who says that they are a Christian, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will actually enter the kingdom of heaven. There are many people who think they are saved even though they are not saved. What a tragedy that would be. That was the reality of my life for many years. I grew up in a Bible-believing home. When I was seven years old, the preacher was talking about hell. I don't know if the air conditioner was on or off, but he was talking about hell. So I did what any seven-year-old would do. I went up front and asked Jesus into my heart. I didn't want to go to hell, right? I, I didn't want to burn forever. So I asked Jesus into my heart. I accepted Christ. But I was not saved that day. I spent the next 12 years of my life living in sin and idolatry and blasphemy. I would say the most blasphemous things you've ever heard. And usually it was about one of two things, video games or Tennessee football. When the ball's lost, I would go on a rant on the internet and it would, it would be awful. That was my life. I thought I loved Jesus. I said I loved Jesus. I prayed before I went to bed. I read the Bible. In other words, I read Revelation occasionally when things got intriguing around the world. But... That was it. I didn't love the things of God. I did not come to Jesus in true repentant faith. I came to Him for fire assurance as a get-out-of-hell-free card. I was not really converted. But by the sovereign grace of God, when I was 19, I heard a message on the internet entitled, Paul Washer's Shocking Youth Message. Paul Washer's Shocking Youth Message. And in that sermon, Paul Washer preaches on Matthew 7, and the premise is that not everyone who's a Christian says he's a Christian is a Christian. Now we need to examine ourselves. We need to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And for the first time in my life, I heard the true Gospel. That God had crushed His Son to save sinners. That it wasn't about merely accepting Jesus, but repenting and believing. And Christ became glorious to me. He was once just this pathetic beggar, begging me to come to Him, dying pathetically, trying to show me He loved me, and was going to cry tears forever if I didn't come to Him. That was a Jesus not even worth following in my estimation. But then I heard the biblical Jesus. This conquering Savior who bore the wrath of God for sinners, rose again victoriously, and commands me to come after Him. That Jesus became precious to me. He became glorious to me. And so by God's grace, I ran from my sin and embraced Christ savingly. So all of that to say then, not everyone who professes to be a Christian is really a Christian. Not everyone who thinks they're going to heaven is actually going to make it. Many are going to hear those dreadful words on the day of judgment. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What sobering words. That there's coming a day when people who have lived their whole lives thinking they're going to heaven only to die and find out they're headed for hell. That would be a sober reality. None of us want that. None of us want that. But how do we know we're the real thing? How do we know we're real Christians? How do you know that you're not a Matthew 7 Christian? Well, the answer is to do what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, examine yourself. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Now, with what do we test ourselves? What is the standard by which we examine ourselves to determine if we're really Christians or not. Is it just other believers? He, you know, this is what this guy does. He, he doesn't really read his Bible. He lives in sin and watches things on television that are evil. Hey, so maybe I can just be like this guy. This guy's the standard. Is that the standard for Christianity? No. The Scripture. The Word of God is the standard by which we are to examine ourselves. And 1 John was written to expose a counterfeit version of Christianity and to lay out a series of tests by which we can measure the validity of our faith or the lack thereof. By which we can measure true conversion from false conversion. So in other words, John wrote this book to give Christians the ability to determine if they're Christians or not. 
And that is the reason I've chosen the book of 1 John, because that is as important as ever that we know if we're really saved. So in light of all that this morning, today we begin an introduction of 1 John. We're just going to introduce the book, and we're going to consider some very introductory information. Because you see, in order to understand the Bible, right, we talked about this before, proper interpretation is essential for proper application. You can't properly apply the Bible unless you properly interpret the Bible, right? We know that. People have misinterpreted Scripture, and it's ended up badly. You misinterpret passages about handling snakes, you end up with a pastor bitten by a venomous snake and he dies, and the children up front are like, what is going on? Right? Bad interpretation leads to bad application. But to rightly interpret the Bible, that demands that we know something of the historical context in which a book is written. The contextual principle. So by way of introduction this morning, I want to consider six important elements of this epistle. Six matters of introduction that will help us understand John's message as we work through each individual passage. We're going to consider the author, the place and date of writing, the recipients, the purposes, the theme, and the outline. And then as I said, next week we'll actually begin to study the text verse by verse, digging into the first two verses. So first, let's consider the author this morning. Who wrote 1 John? Who wrote 1 John? Now to us, it seems obvious, right? We open our Bibles, and it says right there, the first letter of John. That settles it. But that was not actually in the original Greek manuscripts, in the original autograph. 1 John is actually one of two New Testament epistles that are what we call anonymous. That is to say, the author nowhere in the letter identifies himself by name. So how do we know that John wrote the letter? If he doesn't identify himself, Paul does that. Paul makes it very easy for us. You read Romans, what is the first word? I, Paul. Paul. Galatians, Paul. Ephesians, Paul. Even the other writers of the New Testament do the same thing. Jude does that, James does that, Peter does that, but John doesn't do that. There aren't, this isn't really in the form of a normal letter. There aren't any introductory amenities. There's no greetings. There's no introduction of his name. None of that's there. It's as if John just wanted to get right to the point. So how do we know that John wrote the book? Well, I do believe, as, the, as our Bibles asserts, that John did write it, that it was written by the Apostle John. And I think we can conclude that because of two lines of evidence. When we're talking about the authorship of a book of the Bible, there are two lines of evidence that must be examined. The internal evidence and the external evidence. The internal evidence and the external. We'll start with the external evidence. That is to say, outside of the Bible, external Church history and the church fathers unanimously agreed that the Apostle John wrote 1 John. Now this is important for us because with the rise of higher criticism in the 17th century and you know the Enlightenment and all of these things, now scholars are saying John didn't write this. This was written sometime later, probably even after the first century, by somebody else. It's a pseudo-book. It's, it's not really written by John. But if you read church history the first 15 or 16 centuries, every church father agreed that John wrote the book. Let me give you some examples. Polycarp, who lived in around 69 to 155 AD, and was himself, by the way, a disciple of the Apostle John, he knew about this epistle. We can figure that out by reading his writings. And Irenaeus, who was a student of Polycarp, he is the first one to quote 1 John and ascribe Johannine authorship to the book. In his work against heresies, Irenaeus clearly states that John wrote 1 John. And since he was a student of the Apostle John himself, or Polycarp, who was a student of John himself, we have very early attestation that John was the author. We have good reason to believe this. But then one more quick example. We have the testimony of Eusebius. Eusebius was the first church historian And in his work, Ecclesiastical History, he wrote this. But the writings of John, not only his gospel, but also the former of his epistles, that is 1 John, has been accepted without dispute both now and in ancient times. The church history unanimously affirms that the Apostle John is the one who wrote this book. That's important, because when we're talking about what books belong in the Bible, there are three tests. Three tests of canonicity, we call it. The three tests are this. Number one, apostolicity. 
for a book to be considered Scripture and belong in the New Testament, it had to be written either by an apostle or by a close associate of an apostle under his authority. Number two would be orthodoxy. For a book to be considered Scripture, it had to agree with past revelation and biblical doctrine. Number three would then be universality. For a book to be considered Scripture, the church had to agree upon it as a whole. Because the Spirit of God and the people of God recognizes the Word of God. So that's the three tests of canonicity. So if 1 John isn't written by an apostle, or at least one of their associates, then we have reason to question it. But in reality, we have no doubt that 1 John was written by John. So that's the external evidence. But now let's consider the internal evidence for the Johannan authorship of 1 John. By closely examining the Gospel of John and 1 John, it becomes very obvious, due to the many similarities in the books, that whoever wrote John wrote 1 John. They have a same, the same author. The same author. For instance, look down just at the first words here. 1 John, starting in verse 1. There we read this. What was from the beginning? What was from the beginning? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Have we heard those words before? Where else do we read about that? John 1.1. What does John 1.1 say? In the beginning. So both books begin by emphasizing the beginning. Now look back again at verse 1 here. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. This book is about the Word of life. Now, how does John 1 1 read? In the beginning was the Word. And verse 4 says, In him was life. So both books are about the Word of life. Whoever wrote John probably wrote 1 John. By the way, John wrote five books in the New Testament that bear his name. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation. And by even using this word, Word, to identify Jesus, John is already giving away his identity. He's already showing us who the author is. Because Jesus is only identified as the Word in three books of the New Testament. It's not a common title for Jesus. Paul never uses that. Matthew never uses that. It's only used in three books. The Gospel of John, 1 John, and the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation unequivocally declares to be written by John. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. And I want to read the first two verses. Revelation is the final book of the Bible, by the way, for those of you who may not know. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I just said I wouldn't preach through Revelation. Here we are, right? Revelation 1, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Who wrote Revelation? John. Now go to verse 4. Verse 4. John. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. John clearly claims to be the author. Now look at verse 9. Revelation 1.9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this book is clearly written by John. He unequivocally declares himself to be the author. And then in Revelation 19, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, John, speaking of the second coming of Christ, says his name is called the Word of God. His name is called the Word of God. So that title for Jesus, the Word, is used only in John, 1 John, and Revelation. Revelation clearly says it's written by John, and therefore we have reason to believe that whoever wrote Revelation wrote John and 1 John as well. So the author then must be John. And it has to be the Apostle John. There's been others throughout history who've said, well, maybe it's another John. Some have speculated that it's this shadowy figure that they call John the Elder. They do that because in 2nd and 3rd John, John calls himself the Elder. And they say this was not the apostle, this was someone else. Well, there's two problems with that. Number one, there's no evidence that that character ever even existed. Number two, we know that John had to be the apostle because he claims to be an eyewitness. Look at verse 1 again. Go back to 1 John. 
John says, that which is from the beginning is what we have heard. What we have seen with our eyes. What we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. The author is an eyewitness. He uses that plural pronoun, we. It's an apostolic we. It's John and the other apostles. John is an apostolic eyewitness. The only John who fits that description is the Apostle John. So John is the one who wrote 1 John. John identifies himself in his Gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was just enamored with the fact that Jesus loved him. We should be enamored with that as well. He was the son of Zebedee and the brother of James. And both James and John were fishermen until Jesus called them to follow after him. And they both were later given the nickname the Sons of Thunder because of their fiery zeal. Right? We know they wanted to call fire down from heaven at one point. Jesus says, oh, calm down a little bit. But they were the Sons of Thunder. But later, John became known as the Apostle of Love because of his emphasis on love in his writings. So this is the man who wrote 1 John. And since we know it was written by the Apostle John under the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, by one who is an eyewitness of Jesus' glory, we can trust what this book says to us. Though John is the human author of 1 John, we know who the ultimate author is, don't we? Holy Spirit. So this then is the Word of God to us. And we ought to receive it as such. So John's the author. But now secondly, let's consider the date and place of writing. And if you're taking notes maybe to help you out here, maybe what you want to write is number one, the author, and then put John, and then put in parentheses, John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. And you'll know that John wrote all five of those New Testament books. So now we come to the place and date of writing. When did John write the book, and from where did he write the book? Well, it seems most likely that John wrote from Ephesus, and he wrote probably toward the end of the first century. He wrote from Ephesus because church history tells us that. Church history tells us that just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., John took Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him, and they fled and ended up settling in Ephesus, where John conducted an extensive writing and teaching ministry overseeing the churches of Asia Minor. You know, Jesus was warning the disciples about what was going to happen to Jerusalem, right? Stone by stone, not even a stone left on another. And then he said, when you see this and that and this, what did he tell them to do? Believe. John took that seriously. And according to church tradition, he fled and ended up in Ephesus. So he probably wrote from Ephesus. And more than likely, it's toward the end of the first century. Most scholars think about 80 to 95 AD. Some have given it an earlier date in the mid-60s. But I think it was later. Uh, we have many early church fathers, including Irenaeus, who said that John wrote... Uh, there in Ephesus is when he wrote the Gospel and his epistles. And again, since he's in Ephesus after the destruction of Jerusalem, it seems likely that it's toward the end of the first century. There's another reason to believe that John wrote toward the end of the first century, and that is because of the heresy that he writes to refute. John is writing to refute a dangerous false teaching known as Gnosticism. And though we see traces of Gnosticism as early as the 60s with Paul, John's dealing with a more developed form of this heresy that really started to really be fully developed into the second century. So it's very likely that John wrote to the very end of the first century. So John wrote from Ephesus around 80 to 95 A.D. But now thirdly, we need to consider the recipients. To whom did John write? Who were the original recipients of this letter? Well, the answer is probably the churches of Asia Minor. The churches of Asia Minor. And there are three reasons to conclude that. Number one, because church history tells us that John was ministering there at the end of his life. Number two, because of Revelation chapter 1. What did Revelation 1.4 say again? John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So Revelation was addressed to the seven churches of Asia Minor, so it's very likely that his epistles were also addressed to that same group. And a third reason to think that is that Whoever John is writing to must have known him very well because he didn't need to give him any greetings. He didn't need to sign his name. Whoever he wrote to clearly knew John. And that seems most reasonable then to conclude it must have been the churches of Asia Minor where John was living and ministering. 
So if you're taking notes again, you might have number one, the author, John. John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation. Then you might have number two, the place and date of writing. You can put Ephesus around 80, 80 to 90. And then number three, you can put the recipients, the churches of Asia Minor, and put Revelation 1-4 as a cross-reference. And I'll send you all these notes in an email like I did last time so that you have this for future reference as we work through this book. All right, so John wrote this book. He wrote it from Ephesus around 80 to 95 AD to the churches of Asia Minor. But now the question is, why did he write the book? What's the purpose? Or, or what are the purposes for which John wrote? What motivated him to write this letter? Well, John indicates his purposes for writing all throughout the letter. You've got to love John. You know, some authors, they kind of leave it ambiguous. They don't really have these purpose statements. John always states his purpose. In John chapter 20, verse 31, in this gospel, John says, I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. So John had an evangelistic purpose for his gospel. But he had a different purpose here. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 4. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So why did John write? For their joy, his joy, and the joy of his readers to be made complete. He wrote to promote joy. Joy. Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So John wants to keep his readers from sin. He's writing to promote holiness, to produce holiness. Now look at verses 12 to 14 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I'm writing writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children because you know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning, etc., etc., etc. So John is writing to reassure these believers in certain Christian truths, such as forgiveness of sin, the reality that we know the Lord, and that believers have overcome the evil one. He writes to promote truth. Now look at verse 21 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 21. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. So John wants to confirm these believers in the truth that they already know and that they already believe. He writes, promote truth. Now verse 26. Verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So John is writing to affirm the truth He's writing to protect them from error and deception, all the while upholding, affirming them in the truth they already know and believe. So John is dealing with heretics just like Paul was when he wrote Colossians. Now, all of these statements, I think, to some degree, clarify why John wrote the book. But I think his primary purpose statement is found in chapter 5. Go with me to chapter 5. 1 John 5, verse 13. And remember, the Gospel was written for an evangelistic purpose. To convince people to believe in Jesus. Now look at his purpose here. Chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's John's purpose. Now he's writing to those who already believe in Christ to give them assurance, certainty as to their spiritual condition. So this verse then brings all of the other sub-purposes together into a synthetic whole. Daniel Aiken puts it this way, 1 John 5.13 brings together the other purpose statements in a unified theme. And that theme, by the way, is Christian assurance. Christian assurance. Daniel Aiken goes on to add, whereas the Gospel of John is written with an evangelistic purpose, 1 John is penned to provide avenues of assurance whereby a believer can know he has eternal life through the Son. That's it. That's why John wrote. John wanted his readers and the Spirit of God today 
through the Word, wants you and I to have certainty concerning our salvation. And you want that, don't you? None of us want to swing out into eternity on a gamble, hoping that it's all going to work out. We want to know. John wrote the book for that purpose. It's interesting that many people today say you can't have any assurance. Roman Catholicism says you can't have assurance. Ask a Roman Catholic where they're going to go when they die. You know what their answer is going to be almost every time? Probably purgatory. Almost every time. Probably purgatory. There's a, there, in their minds, there's a better chance they're going to hell than heaven because they're just not enough. So Catholicism says you can have no assurance. But John says you can know you have eternal life. So John wrote to promote joy. He wrote to promote holiness, truth, and assurance. And all of these are interconnected. Because if you believe the truth and live in holiness, you can have assurance of your salvation, which brings about true joy. True joy. That's why John wrote the book. So why did he write? He wrote to lay out a series of tests by which we can measure the genuineness of our faith. By which we can determine our true spiritual condition. Joy, holiness, truth, assurance. If you believe the truth, live in holiness, you'll have assurance, and then you'll know true Christian joy. Now in light of all of that, we need to consider the heresy that John writes to refute. What is that heresy? Many have identified it as an early form of incipient Gnosticism, or also known as docetic Gnosticism. We've already dealt with Gnosticism, at least to some degree, as we work through Colossians. But as I said, John's kind of dealing with a more fully developed form of this heresy at the end of the first century. And Gnosticism is really a form of what we call Platonism. It was a philosophical dualism that was popularized by the philosopher named Plato. And basically, this is the premise of it. Matter is evil and spirit is good. Matter is evil, spirit is good. So their problem was trying to figure out how the good God, who is pure spirit and transcendent light, could have anything to do with an evil material world because matter is evil inherently, they said. This led them to deny divine creation. They denied that God created the world because God would never do that. So they postulated that a series of emanations or lesser gods have kind of emanated forth from the true God. Some of them are good, some of them are evil, depending on how far down the line you get. And it was one of these evil gods whom they termed the Demiurge that made the world. As a result, the spirits that God had made were entrapped in evil material bodies. And so the goal of salvation in Gnosticism is not salvation from the wrath of God through Christ, but it's liberation from the material world into the world of spirits. Does that sound problematic to you? Does that sound consistent with Christian theology to you? Now this was their theodicy. This was their defense of God in the light of moral evil. The problem is, it's the wrong one. It's the wrong theodicy. There are obviously several heretical notions that resulted from this skewed view of God in the world. First of all, since matter is evil and spirit good, a good God would never take on a human body. So this led them to deny the reality of the Incarnation. They denied the full deity and true humanity of Christ. Jesus isn't God, the Gnostics, Christians said. Because what they did, these false teachers took a form of Gnosticism and blended it in to their Christianity. And they developed their own Christian form of Gnosticism. And so, the idea then is God. Jesus is not the true God. Jesus is just one of many lesser gods down the chain. He's a good God nonetheless, but He's just a lesser God. And they also denied the reality of the Incarnation. Because Jesus didn't become a man. He only seemed to be a man. It's called docetism from the Greek word dokine, meaning to appear or seem. He was just like a phantom or a ghost. He just seemed like a man. We can see traces of this heresy throughout 1 John. For instance, look at the very first verse here. Very first verse. What was from the beginning? What we have heard. What we have seen with our eyes. What we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the Word of life. 
the letter begins with an affirmation of the incarnation. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. God incarnate. Now look at chapter 4. Go to chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Who in the world would deny Jesus is coming in the flesh? The Gnostic Christians. That's it. And John was clearly dealing with that heresy. And then, you know, by denying this idea of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and the incarnation, you know what that leads to? If He wasn't fully God and fully man, guess what Jesus couldn't do? He couldn't die on the cross, could He? So now the Gospels at stake. They denied the reality of the atonement. Jesus didn't die for sinners. John deals with that in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, He is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, Jesus is the one who died on the cross, bore the wrath of God, and satisfied His justice against us for our sins. But that notion is not consistent with the Gnostic system of thought. But John refutes that idea. But then they also denied the reality of human sin. They deny the reality of human sin. They said, since matter is evil and spirit good, what I do with my body really doesn't matter. It's inconsequential. When I sin, it's not really me doing it. I didn't do it with my spirit. So this would lead them to both indulge in sin while simultaneously claiming to be without sin completely. Just watch this. Go to chapter 1. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, now who in the world would say that? These heretics would. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. That's convenient, isn't it? I don't sin because what happens in my body doesn't matter. So now I can indulge in sin and soothe my conscience and say I'm pure. We see that all over the world today. That's, that's Catholicism. Not exactly denying the reality of sin, but in Catholicism, I can sin, 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 and then go confess it to the priest and go through the rituals and rites of Catholicism and have a clean conscience. And then, when it doesn't work out, I'll still go to purgatory and eventually make it to heaven anyway. I can have a clean conscience while indulging in my sin. They go to chapter 3. So they claim to be without sin, but John tells us they were indulging in it. Look at verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Why did he have to say that? Because there were people trying to deceive him. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. These false teachers were trying to deceive the believers of Asia Minor into believing that they could live in sin and yet be sinners. What a heretical notion. What a damnable notion. And they were demonstrating by their sinful practice that they were not really born of God. But finally, their supposed secret knowledge, that's where the word Gnostic comes from, the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. The idea is that we are liberated from the material world through some sort of enlightenment. We attain this mystical higher knowledge. And so that higher knowledge led them to be puffed up. It led to pride. And in their pride, they denied their need to love their neighbor as themselves. And that explains John's constant emphasis on the necessity of love as an evidence that true salvation has taken place. So to sum it up, these false teachers had bought into the lie of Gnosticism, or a Christian form of Gnosticism, and in doing so, they were denying the truth about Christ and the truth about the Gospel. That is what was at stake. They were now presenting a counterfeit version of Christianity that looked like Christianity to some degree, but really wasn't. Do we have that problem in our day? Counterfeit versions of Christianity? Absolutely. Everywhere. The Mormons, the Witnesses, the Catholics, the Oneness Pentecostals, the, all these groups running around preaching false Gospels, but doing it under the guise of Jesus and Christianity, deceiving the world. So they were troubling these believers of Asia Minor, and John writes set the record straight. To make matters worse, many of these false teachers actually began in the church. Right? 1 John 2.19, what does he say? 
they went out from us because they were not really of us. So these heretics started in the church, left the church, defected from the truth, and were now trying to deceive the Christian faithful. And this obviously was disturbing to John and to the believers of Asia Minor. And really, all that was happening is what Paul predicted would happen many years before the writing of 1 John. You see, John wrote at the end of the first century, about three decades earlier, two or three decades, in the 60s, Paul tells the Ephesian elders this in Acts chapter 20. Listen to what Paul tells them. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. So Paul warned them a decade or two earlier that this was going to happen. Heretics were going to rise up from within the church and seek to deceive them, and that is exactly what happened. And the Gnostic heretics are a classic case in point. So John writes the book for the purpose of refuting the Gnostic heretics and to affirm the Christians in their faith. To lay out a series of tests by which we can distinguish between true Christianity and counterfeit Christianity. Authentic from the false. So the theme of 1 John then, as I said, is Christian assurance. Christian assurance. And it's not all negative. There's a positive tone. It's not merely polemical. There is a pastoral tone. John's not primarily writing to convince people they're not saved. John is writing to convince them that they are saved, that they do have the truth, and they don't need to be troubled by the heretics. John's tone is positive. And that's kind of my desire. I do desire that those who may come in any given Lord's Day as we work through 1 John, who may be unconverted, that they would come to see that reality so that they would be genuinely saved. But it's primarily my desire, brothers and sisters, that each of you who are converted would know that, would have certainty, assurance, and thus confidence, because death does nothing but ushers us into the presence of the Savior. So I want you to have assurance of your salvation. So if you're writing notes again, number four, purposes, you can put joy, chapter 1, verse 4. Holiness, chapter 2, verse 1. You can put truth, but chapter 2, there's so many verses there, just put chapter 2. And then for assurance, you can put 1 John 5.13. 1 John 5.13. And then for number 5, the theme, you're going to write Christian assurance. Christian assurance. Now all of that brings us sixthly and finally this morning to the outline of the book. The outline. Outlining 1 John is very difficult because it's not like some of the other letters of the New Testament. It's not like the writings of Paul. Paul's arguments and his writings are very linear, very logical, very sequential. Paul, in fact, early in our nation, lawyers, those being trained to be lawyers in law schools, were required to read Romans because of Paul's airtight, precise argument. That's how Paul writes. John doesn't do that. You know, Paul goes, number one, A, B, C, D, E, G. Oh, number two, John doesn't do that. John is like speaking in a circle. His writings are cyclical. John will say something, then he'll say something else, then he'll circle back around and say the same things over and over again, going deeper and deeper each time. It's as if he's trying to teach his people by way of repetition. So John just says the same thing. Once you get through the second chapter, you've basically got all John's got to say. We're just going to keep hearing the same thing over and over again. But remember, when we do that, and maybe on a week you think, man, he keeps talking about the same thing. What are, it's hot in here. It actually feels good today. But, you know, it might not next week. It's hot in here. He just keeps talking about the same stuff. But remember, the Spirit of God laid it out that way. And we need to hear that. That's why. We need to be reminded. So John writes in circles. So I think the best way to outline the book of 1 John is to identify a series of tests, three tests that John cycles through over and over again by which we can determine if we're real Christians or not. Those three tests are the doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. The doctrinal test, the true Christian believes the truth. The moral test, the true Christian obeys the truth. And the social test, the true Christian loves in truth. Three tests. 
And these tests, by the way, are very relevant to us today. False conversion is as common today, if not more so, than it was in the first century. So it's imperative for us to be sure we're in the faith. So in the little time we have left this morning, what I want to do is work through these three tests briefly and just show you them in 1 John with the hopes that we can consider the reality of our faith in light of these tests. So first of all, there's the doctrinal test. The doctrinal test. The true Christian believes the truth. The truth about God, the truth about sin, the truth about the Scripture, the truth about the Gospel, but specifically in the context, the truth about Christ. The true Christian believes the truth about Christ. We've already seen the first few verses. We go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. You know that Antichrist are all around us? Every time the Mormon knocks on your door, guess who that is? The Antichrist. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So if you don't believe in Christ, you're not a Christian. Very simple. Very simple. John 1, in the beginning is the Word. He's with God. He is God. He became flesh. He's the God-man. John 8.24, Jesus says, Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sin. So if you do not believe the truth about Christ, that He's fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, sinless life, dying, resurrected Redeemer, if you don't believe that, you are not a Christian. You are not a child of God, no matter what you do in your life. You are condemned under God's wrath, and you need to repent and believe in Christ. Because only the true Christ can save you. So that's the doctrinal test. The true Christian believes the truth. If you don't believe that truth, please talk with me afterwards. I would love to counsel you, talk with you, and help you find true hope and assurance in the Gospel. But if you do believe that truth, then praise God because you pass test number one. But number two, the moral test. The moral test. The true Christian obeys the truth. The true Christian obeys the truth. Look at 1 John 2 again. Verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. How do we know we know Christ? We obey Christ. And by the way, to know Christ is to be saved. John 17.3 This is eternal life that they may know you. Right? Salvation is knowing Christ. John says the evidence you know Jesus is you obey Jesus. Look at verse 4. The flip side. The one who says, I've come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. John is black and white. There's just no gray areas for John. Either you obey Christ and thus you're a believer or you do not and thus you're not a believer. It's very simple. Obedience to God's moral law, to the commandments of Christ, are an evidence of genuine saving faith. We go to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Verse 7 again. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Okay, you got two people. One who lives in sin, he's of the devil. One who lives in righteousness, he's of God. That's how you know your belief. Not perfection, direction. We're talking about the pattern of one's life, and increasingly so. Your life is not marked by sin if you're a true believer. Now, where did John get this? Where did John get the idea that obedience to Jesus is an evidence we really believe in? Him? He got it from Jesus. John 14, 15, what does Jesus say? If you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's the evidence we know and love Christ. We obey Him. Obedience doesn't save us, it evidences salvation. We've got to make the right distinction between law and gospel. Law doesn't save, gospel saves, but the gospel saves us from the law that we might become obedient to the law. We're freed from the law as a covenant of works, but we still have it as a rule of life, and because we love Jesus, we do what He commands. 
That is the evidence of a true believer. So the true Christian obeys the truth. Thirdly and finally, the social test. The social test. The true Christian loves the truth. Look at chapter 2, verse 9. The one who says he's in the light, yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. I got a chapter, chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 14. Verse 14. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. How do we know we've passed out of spiritual death to spiritual life? We love. We love. And again, where did John get that? John 13, 35. Jesus says, By this all men will know you are my disciples if you what? Have love for one another. Love. The true Christian believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves in truth. Finally, go to chapter 5. John sums this all up in one little passage. Brings it all together. Chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. There's the doctrinal test. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. There's the social test. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. There's the moral test. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So the true Christian believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves the truth. So the Apostle John wrote this book from Ephesus, around AD 80-95, to the churches of Asia Minor, to refute the errors of Gnosticism, and to lay out a series of tests by which we can measure the reality of our faith. The theme is Christian assurance. And, in light of those tests, brothers and sisters, we need to examine our own hearts. Are these things true of you and me? Do you believe the truth? Is your life marked by obedience? And is your life marked by love? If not, you have every reason to be afraid. Every reason. But if so, you say, I'm not perfect though. I I still sin. I still don't understand everything in the Bible. I still sometimes blow it and I don't love my neighbor like I should. Neither do I. But we're talking about the direction of your life. Do you see these things evident in your life and increasing? If so, praise God. That's the life of a Christian. That's the life of a Christian. And next time we'll dig into this letter verse by verse and draw out the rich truth that is in it. But for now, brothers and sisters, let us believe the truth, obey the truth, and love in truth for our assurance and for the glory of God. Are you excited about this study yet? I hope so, I am. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this wonderful little letter filled with so much truth for us. The Yohanan epistles are just amazing. Filled with wonderful, compact truth over and over again. The same things, but we need them. And I pray that everyone here, Lord, will be able to examine themselves and say, yes, I've passed the test. Yes, there is a work of the Spirit of God in my heart, and I know that He who began the work in me will bring it to completion and perfection in the day of Christ. Thank you for that, Lord. Be with us now, we pray. Amen.